1990 Tony Awards, sponsored by New Advanced Formula Windex. Cleans your windows even better than before, both inside and out. All right, welcome back to My Little Tonys. We're here finishing up 1990. We got some good stuff, some bad stuff, some weird stuff, just all kinds of stuff for you. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of different loose ends. I feel like this has been a really um, eclectic year in a really fun way. Yeah, and uh, there's still some surprises, even though I thought I knew. Me too. For the listeners at home, it is New Year's Day, um, so we are um, bringing in the new year the right way by um, talking about these shows. But I will say before we get started, one thing that has been burning in my heart for the past week between these recording sessions is that I feel like something we forgot to mention and is like a comparison between the two is that City of a- both City of Angels and Grand Hotel were kind of like doomed in their preview um, phase and ended up triumphant despite rumblings of badness out of town and during previews. That's true. They were both able to turn it around. And good for them. So Grand Hotel opened November 12th, 1989, closed April 25th, 1992 after 1,017 performances. And this had a lot of cooks in the kitchen. It was book by Luther Davis, music and lyrics by Robert Wright and George Forrest, with additional music and lyrics by Maury Yeston, and uncredited book doctoring by Peter Stone. And it was based on the 1929 Vicki Baum novel and play called Mention Im Hotel, which means people in a hotel, <laughs> and the subsequent 1932 MGM feature film. And the synopsis is, in 1928 Berlin, the world is between wars and the stock market is booming. The center of the action is the illustrious Grand Hotel. The show concerns the eccentric guests of the hotel, including a beautiful prima ballerina, the charming but broke young baron, the determined Hollywood hopeful, the deathly ill bookkeeper, the honest, hardworking father-to-be, and the cynical doctor. And it was nominated for Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Best Score, Best Performance by Leading Actor for David Carroll, Best Performance by Leading Actress for Liliane Montevecchi, Best Performance by a Featured Actor for Michael Jeter, Best Performance by a Featured Actress for Jane Krakowski, Uh, direction choreography scenic design costume design and lighting design and Michael Jeter won uh, Tommy Toon won direction and choreography and costume and lighting design both won as well so you know it did pretty well there's a lot of stuff going on with this one (laughs) and also a lot of conflicting information too where I feel like in there was like a times profile of Tommy Toon where he's like I hated the movie but like I love the source material but then I read (laughs) another interview where he's like of course I love that movie and like I came up with the idea yeah Tommy Toon is very coy about it in his book also I noticed he was uh kind of glossing over a lot of it um it was a very short section in his book But um, so basically the backstory of this was that so originally the team behind Kismet um, adapted the I guess they adapted the book um, in 1958 to a show called At the Grand. But they reset it to Rome because at the time, like nobody wanted it in Berlin. Everyone was still thinking about Nazis, whereas Rome was kind of like fun and sexy and everyone was, you know, doing their thing um, and sort of changed a lot of the main characters to sort of tailor them to the cast. Like Joan Diener uh, starred in it, so they changed the ballerina to be an opera singer for her. 
Um, but it never ended up coming to Broadway and they shelved it for 30 years until Tommy Toon heard about it and was like, hey, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I can do a little something with that. Yeah. And I think that my favorite part about um, the like tortured at the Grand, I guess it was actually pretty successful when it ran uh, like throughout California, but it closed on the road um, because the leading man, Paul Muni, was like very paranoid um, and he was kind of the star who was carrying it. He had just won an Academy Award for Inherit the Wind. So he was like a big draw for it. But um, this is from uh, Not Since Carrie. It is likely that it would have proceeded to the 46th Street Theater, where it was scheduled to open on September 25th, 1958, had not Muni refused to continue. He suffered from paranoid fears that Marr and Diener were against him, barely slept a wink during the run, and when his preliminary contract was up, he refused to sign a new one. As reported by Jerome Lawrence in his book Actor, The Life and Times of Paul Muni, the cast of At the Grand did not take well to Muni's closing the show and decided to avenge themselves on the last night. Muni had an intense dislike of cleavage and scantily clad chorus girls. (laughs) During the final performance, a chorus girl deliberately slapped a bare breast in his face. (laughs) (laughs) Diener topped that during the curtain call by turning upstage to Muni and opening her full-length mink coat to reveal herself naked, but for a long-stemmed rose between her legs. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. That's amazing. Which is, like, kind of funny because, like, I was like, oh, it's a not since Carrie. It must not have been, like, that good in its original iteration and, like, flopped. But, like, I guess it, like, wasn't the biggest flop and it probably would have opened on Broadway in the 50s if the star didn't pull out and... (laughs) wasn't such a prude <laughs> yeah it's um kind of crazy but that's so funny and also i think it's worth mentioning that the original grand hotel the movie was sort of the first like big ensemble cast film i think where like you have all of these sort of different characters kind of interacting and you know the movie had joan crawford it had um greta garbo it had a Barrymore, you know, it was sort of your first time, you know, it's sort of like your classic uh, Valentine's Day, New Year's <laughs> Eve is obviously the, you know, the descendants of, of Grand Hotel. So yeah, so that was kind of also uh, an innovation. But in this 90, in this 80s, 90s incarnation, there were no stars, which was another sort of big element of it, everyone, and it was kind of um, an unknown. I mean, you had your, like, your Lillian Montevecchis, but it's like, yeah. she's kind of a <laughs> kind of a niche, a niche name. Yeah, and I think she and Karen Akers were sort of just brought over, because they were in nine, and I think that, you know, Tommy was like, we gotta get the gang back together. Yeah, so Tommy Toon, so as I mentioned, he doesn't say too much so Robert Wright and George For- and George Forrest, he's he calls George Chet, which is that his name? Is that like his nickname? Is that a nickname for George? I feel like old people's nickname culture. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. So he calls them Bob Wright and Chet Forrest, which sure. So they were both in their 80s at this point. So he said, I went along with Jack to hear the score. Both Bob and Chet are senior members of the race and are chock full of fascinating stories from the show business wars. What full careers they've had, including one of my favorite musicals, Kismet, for which they adapted the music of Bourdine, adding poetic lyrics. Their songs sing themselves in the throats of vocally gifted performers. This time out, they'd written their own music, and I liked it very much. Green as I always seem to be, I pass this autumnal colored advice on to any potential director or interested theater devotee. 
Always consider the source. In this case, it was this pair of elderly gentlemen, Chet playing his piano and Bob singing in his sturdy yet tortured voice, presenting their new score to me with such feeling and devotion to the art of songwriting that I was deeply moved. I miscalculated how these songs might sound in the voices of an actual cast. Rehearsals began and song after song faltered while struggling to soar out of the characters' mouths, which I thought was kind of an interesting um, lens. So then he's kind of like... So let's skip through the tedium of at least two years of meetings with the authors to get the rehearsal version of the show in order. Let us skip the endless backers auditions and the casting sessions and arguments and laughs and stories. Theater people tell great stories and meetings with designers, producers, press people, advertising people, union people, and on and on. Let us skip to the opening night in Boston. Basically in Boston, it was in bad shape and Tommy Toon was like, I'm going to call in Maury Estin and Peter Stone to help, and everyone was very unhappy about that. But it's ultimately what it needed. Yeah, and Maury Estin cranked out, like, six songs in a week and a half. He, like, wrote a new song for pretty much every major character, which is, like, because he was, like, well, first he was, like, Bob and Chet. <laughs> like, yeah. you guys need to write some new songs, and they were just, you know, like, 80-something-year-old men writing, like, a verse a day. <laughs> and he was, like, this isn't going to work. <laughs> Yeah, and it's funny because at this point, the last time that they they had a show or a new show on Broadway, I think, was Timbuktu, which actually wasn't a new show. So right. it's been a while for them. And, um, you know, I think that it's not to be bully these two elderly men, but um, all of the songs that I feel like I'm like, oh, wow, I love this song uh, were all written by Maury Estin. Yeah, so there was continuing drama about that. Here's a little bit more about Peter Stone versus Luther Davis, who was the original book writer. Davis said, When Tommy told Wright and Forrest, I'll walk if Maury doesn't come in, they caved. When he tried that on me, I told him, go ahead and walk if anything is put in the book but anyone but me. For a while, Yeston's name appears officially on the window cards and playbills and will be on this cast album. Stone's is nowhere to be found. Said Stone many months later, I didn't take credit because people who know Broadway know that I did it, and the people who don't know Broadway don't care who wrote a musical's book anyway. Anyway. And then Davis, when he heard that, said, the reason Stone's name isn't anywhere is because he didn't do anything. When Tommy said he wanted him, I said no, because I knew everyone would say he'd written the whole thing. Tommy insisted, but I called Peter and said, I don't want you here. He was president of the Dramatists Guild then and very sensitive to the rights of writers. So he said, I wouldn't think of coming if the author didn't want me. Three days later, I come to the theater and there's Peter. I said, what the hell are you doing here? And he told me, Tommy said he wouldn't do the, the Will Rogers Follies. Uh, which he was writing the book for, if I don't at least show up. Yeah, so, you know, drama, drama, drama. And that carried on through, um, like, when they published the vocal selections for the show. Um, Wright and Forrest wanted their songs published separately so there were like two separate song selections if you wanted to like play the whole show you had to buy these two separate books and that's also why um the cast album was held up for so long it was held up they recorded it like a week before closing or something like that like most of the cast had already left wow um which leads to the other sort of big thing that i think the show is known for which is that david carroll who was um you know suffering from sort of advanced progression of AIDS um, to the point where he wasn't even in the Tony performance, even though he was nominated for a Tony, he died in the bathroom during the cast recording, which has always been sort of like a confusing story. But apparently they invited him like a few weeks early to like just lay down his parts. And that's when it happened, which like cast a very like sad shadow over the whole thing. But it's not the same as like everybody being there. when it happened yeah and being like yeah. <laughs> yeah so so they included him singing his um big song as like a bonus track 
from, I think, mm-hmm. when he did it, like, as part of his cabaret show. Who could ever have suspected I would be here trembling so I can't think of any answer other than if love comes when love comes you Yeah, R.I.P. David Carroll. It's very sad. Yeah, and despite like all of the sort of drama between the uh, music writers, I feel like in all of his interviews, Maury Estin is like very composed and like very kind about it all. Um, because I think ultimately, I feel like for years before I really understood it i like had to just assume that he wrote all the songs it's true i think he really gets um a lot of the credit for it yeah i think he's someone who like does not have a huge ego and maybe you know doesn't necessarily have the career that would give him a huge ego like he's had his successes but i think he's not like household name status unless you're um you know us (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and i guess to go back and the last thing was this is where maury and peter were in the same room and i feel like peter was like what's your next project maury and he's like oh i want to write about a musical about the titanic and then peter was like wait i want to write a musical about the (laughs) titanic you can't steal my idea and then maury was like why don't we just work together Um, that's beautiful and that's how titanic got afloat (laughs) so yeah so i think this was praised as like a triumph for Tommy Toon. I think sort of the other elements were not as praised. The Frank Rich review was very like loved the design, loved the direction, but wasn't really crazy about the book score or performances. The score is good, but it is very like, I don't know. I I really feel like there is such a shadow of cabaret over it, even though like like especially the opening number has a very like candor and ebby vamp on it. But then it's like, is this just all sort of Kurt Vile homage, you know, like not really fair to drag that in there. But it's it's hard to divorce that association of Berlin in the late 20s. It's kind of like, you know, we've been there. Yeah, that's interesting. And I feel like uh, we had talked about this where and I had mentioned this to you earlier, but it's like this thing with like Tommy Toon where like he is so amazing. But like there are parts of Follies that feel really recycled in nine. There are parts of this that like just feel very cabaret down to like I think that like what makes cabaret so successful is this sort of just feeling of like this decadence is going to lead to some sort of downfall and I think that that's kind of like what is the mechanics behind this show as well Mm -hmm. yeah but I think they're afraid to really go there in the way that cabaret does and, and you know what it also reminded me of is the Wild Party, the Lacusa one. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Like sort of getting those vibes of all of these different characters kind of, uh, you know, intersecting. There were sort of just like the way um, it has, you know, there were sort of spoken scenes with music under it, like and kind of that 20s uh, pastiche was sort of uh, bringing that to mind, which, you know, I'm not mad at it. Yeah, neither am I. Like this is definitely a show. I mean, one for one thing. 
thing. I feel like we're jumping all over the place, but um, <laughs> um, so I'll just keep doing that. Um, yeah, yeah, it's working. I feel like the Tony performance, before even dipping a toe into the My Little Tony's project, I feel like this was a Tony's performance that I knew about. It was definitely on one of those like Broadway's Lost Treasure DVDs. We'll take a glass together and we will lift it to the good life. And as we're lifting it, we will most sincerely say, Bruises, your health, sir. Salute and scold. Nastrovia! Avodra Sante! For one brief moment in this cold and careless day, we'll take a glass together. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's pretty amazing. And also, I didn't know that I didn't realize that Michael Jeter is not a trained dancer at all. So it's like, how did he do that? <laughs> like his body is like made of rubber. Yeah, it's amazing. But it's also so like for what I like always knew it was like so familiar with him and like was like, where do I know this man from? And like, obviously, he's like a very established character actor. But I felt like especially watching him move, there was something that really uh made me like be like I know him from somewhere and apparently he um had like a reoccurring segment on Sesame Street in like the 2000s oh, yeah. as Mr. Noodle <laughs> uh, I think that's his name yeah um it was like a, an Elmo's an Elmo segment where like I feel like Elmo would like watch him on TV or something but wash your hands Mr. Noodle ah get at a sink with some water no, no. Mr. Noodle that's your food, Mr. Noodle. <laughs> Wash your hands, Mr. Noodle. Oh. <laughs> and that was actually right before he passed um, as well. Right. That's something that comes up a lot in the discussion of this is that, you know, his character is someone who's sort of like tragically, you know, fatally ill and uh, is looking for a last hurrah. And, you know, unbeknownst to everyone, he was close to the end of his life. But this was a performance where, like, when I was watching it, it really, I was like about to start crying just because I miss, I miss the theater so much. And like, you know, those kind of like amazing moments where the audience is just like freaking out and everyone is like, it's just very joyful. And I was like, when are we going to have that again? Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of love for this whole show, like through the performance. And even like, I feel like anytime Tommy Toon's name was mentioned, people were like, ah. And the Tony Award goes to... Tommy Toon, Brother Yeah, and when, uh, you know, Michael Jeter, he and he ended up winning the Tony very shortly after the performance, and his, you know, he gave a very sweet little speech about sort of, you know, finding success through sobriety, which I think, you know, I, I like it when people use their speeches to um, communicate something, something important to them, um, which is maybe a stupid way to say that, but <laughs> you know what I mean. And the only other thing I'd like to say tonight is, if you're out there somewhere tonight and you've got a problem with alcohol or drugs and you can't stop, you think life can't change and that dreams can't come true, then I stand here as living proof that you can stop. It changes a day at a time and dreams come true. And also I saw that Chip Zine was a replacement, which is like, can he do that? Can he dance like that? I don't know. 
Any, anyone who saw Chip Zine and uh, can confirm, you know, weigh in. And, uh, you know, I'm curious. So Frank Rich, this is sort of his, like, reflection before the 1991 season, talking about, like, uh, and I think maybe we mentioned this last season that there was a very exciting slate of musicals coming in with, um, you know, The Secret Garden, You Had Once on This Island, Miss Saigon, um, Will Rogers Follies. That was an exciting Tony race. So he writes, until then, the front line for the American musical remains the two current flagship American musicals on Broadway, City of Angels and Grand Hotel. Both recently entered the second year of their runs, and that in itself represents a comeback for the form. Not since the 1983-84 Broadway season produced both La Cage Full and Sunday in the Park with George have two new American musicals opening in the same season have had such staying power on Broadway. City of Angels and Grand Hotel deserve their longevity without question, but revisiting the two shows this month to see how they were faring after substantial cast turnovers, I was struck by how transitional they both look. These musicals seem to be taking place on two different planets, aesthetically at least, and each seems incomplete, as if it were lacking what the other had. If the American musical is now poised to rally for another era of international glory, it can make good on that promise only by transcending the sum of both of these shows' better theatrical parts." And so he sort of talks a little bit about City of Angels um, and how it it has a great book and score, but not really any dancing or just sort of like not really the unified sort of movement, like integrated all of one piece. He says the director, this director is some kind of genius with an impeccable theatrical eye and an ability to take subconscious charge of an audience vision. As the change in performers accentuates, the real reason why the dying bookkeeper's number will take a glass together, stops the show, has less to do with character plot or performance than with a visual twist in the staging. Mr. Toon heightens the celebratory excitement of the oppressed bookkeeper's belated leap to freedom by making him the only character in the evening who literally leaps out of the grid-like frame that encases the show. The blot on Grand Hotel, aside from its occasional rehashes of directorial ideas from Harold Prince's Cabaret and from Mr. Prince and Michael Bennett's Follies, is that the whole show is fairly meaningless except as a predictable mood piece about Weimar Germany. Forbidden Broadway rightly parodied this musical as Grim Hotel, which comes up a lot. I saw Forbidden Broadway's parody of this mentioned in more places than I've ever seen a Forbidden Broadway. <laughs> it's always the same here at Grim Hotel. Nothing ever happens. People come. People go. People move chairs. Yeah, I don't know why, but Forbidden Broadway got a lot of press this year. I know. I think Grim Hotel really nailed it. Um, for its grimness is ludicrously unearned, despite the periodic attempts to drag in class conflict by having scullery servants harangue audiences with lyrics like, some have, some have not. Does anyone really believe that Mr. Toon gives a hoot about Marxism? Um, worse, the director seems to invest little passion in the pulpy aspects of Grand Hotel as well. The show never delivers the romance, sexiness, and tear-jerking soap operatics of the MGM movie that shares its title. So then he says, um, Frank Rich makes a good point, which is, Unlike Mr. Bennett, Mr. Prince, Mr. Robbins, Gower Champion, and Agnes DeMille, Mr. Toon has never worked on a musical in which the other principal collaborators, often on stage, were all of his artistic stature. Would those directors be considered giants today if their reputations rested on musicals of the caliber of Nine and Grand Hotel? Which I think is an interesting question. I mean, I like nine more than Frank Rich does, apparently. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of the big question. Yeah, no, and I think that that is a good point. Like, I just feel like Tommy Toon in both situations really did steamroll the rest of the creative team. 
And maybe it's kind of a Fosse thing because I noted I noticed Bob Fosse was not on that list. Yeah, because even like me and my girl is like so often, which I guess is another Tom is kind of the Tommy Toon hit from before this, you know, is sort of like Tommy Toons, me and my girl. And, you know, I think that for something like a night in I always mess that up. Day in Hollywood, a night in Ukraine. Yes. Um, he is given this like savior narrative of like him coming in and like fixing all the problems and like, you know, but in like a way that I feel like he maybe, I mean, not that there was that there is that much vision, but like, I feel like he might steamroll things a little bit, but yeah. And also it's interesting, like coming before his big fall with, um, you know, the best little whorehouse goes public, public. I was just thinking a few years later, um, you know, your days are numbered, Tommy Toon. But this was actually nice. I, there was a profile of him in the Times, and um, this is kind of like the end. His like end quote: um, "Doing Grand Hotel or any other any show is almost like painting a canvas." He says, "You have an image in your mind of what you're going for, but with each brush stroke, um, if you're really painting it, you're surprised by how it has come out. You can." choose either to leave it that way or wipe it out and do it the way you originally imagined and a musical of course is such a collaborative thing you have so many colors to paint with which i think like very much challenges everything that we were just saying so maybe he doesn't understand (laughs) (laughs) he's an interesting guy i can't really i still can't really get a handle on him i also even though it didn't win the tony i do want to shout out the set which seemed very interesting because especially because it was sort of an optical illusion where it was like a two-tiered set where it looked like it had all of these um columns like supporting the second or the second level but the columns I think were transparent so that you could see through them which meant that they couldn't support it so actually the second level was like suspended from the ceiling like a 70,000 pound weight um because the orchestra was up there also wow i didn't realize that yeah so and also um since the orchestra was on the upper level jack lee who was the musical director was bald and was like uh the light was like bouncing off of his head so they made him wear a wig (laughs) oh my god that is insane um so you know sometimes you find something something a little fun like that And uh, I think we mentioned Jane Krakowski. This was sort of her, you know, she had made her Broadway debut in Starlight Express a few years earlier, and she was only 18. Um, And they mentioned that she auditioned for nine when she was 13, and she didn't get the part. But then Tommy Toon called her agent when he was casting Grand Hotel and was like, who is that girl with the Polish last name? (laughs) So everyone had sort of like singled her out as, uh, you know, future star. And uh, they were right. I feel like her song, I Want to Go to Hollywood, is my one of my two favorite songs in the whole show. What's your other favorite? At the Grand Hotel. But until that occurs, I do intend to remain. I want to know that I once was here, while all my faculties still are clear and check into my room. 
as I planned at the Grand Hotel. Sung by Michael Jeter, but like for the whole before I was like really digging into it, I thought that it was Lillian Montevecchi. <laughs> <laughs> you know, same difference. As messy as it seems, um, I think it is. Um, you know, there is some truth to like what Tommy Tune's saying, especially in this case where there is just like such a history of this material, and like it almost feels like a reality TV show of like yeah. let's like r- pimp your bad <laughs> book musical. <laughs> wow, I would love to see that. I know, right? <laughs> um, I think you've hit on your million dollar idea. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so our last nominated Best Musical is Meet Me in St. Louis. Meet Me in St. Louis opened on November 2nd, 1989 and closed June 10th, 1990 um, after 252 performances, music and lyrics by Hugh Martin and Ralph Plain, and um, a book by Hugh, Hugh Wheeler. It was directed by Louis Burke and choreographed by Joan Brickhill. Um, and it was based on the 1944 Vincent Minnelli film of the same name. Uh, synopsis. Based on the heartwarming film of the same name, Meet Me in St. Louis takes audience members on a musical journey back to the early 1900s on the brink of the 1904 World's Fair. In the show's center are the Smiths, a humble middle-class family made up of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, their four daughters, Rose, Esther, Agnes, and Tootie, and their son, Lon. That's the end of our official synopsis, but very much like the film, um, the musical follows this family's trials and tribulations for a calendar year or so. Um, making stops at all of our favorite holidays. But it's also kind of funny because I feel like sometimes the synopsises that we find like or put on the podcast like don't really do a good job of summing things up. But this one also like a lot doesn't really happen. No, it's very vignette focused. There's not a lot of narrative drama. <laughs> and it was nominated for Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical for Hugh, Hugh Wheeler, Best Original Score for Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine, and Best Choreography for uh, Joan Brickhill. And it won none of the awards. It's funny that, uh, you know, Hugh Wheeler went from, um, you know, Sweeney Todd to <laughs> Meet Me in St. Louis. It's quite the the resume. I know. And also, um, was it Len Carey? Was Len Carey or... No, George Hearn was in it. George That's Hearn true. was in it, so. <laughs> That's funny. And, you know, we had our Sweeney Todd revival this year, so everyone, uh, it all comes full circle. So I didn't expect there's, you know, I was sort of like, oh, all right, you know, Mimi and St. Louis, like we're coming off of, uh, you know, in the 80s, we had Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and Singing in the Rain sort of adapted to the stage, which were both huge flops. But um, the sort of twist on this one is that it was brought to the stage by the king and queen of South African theater. (laughs) (laughs) 
which is interesting. You know, they were like these, you know, this white South African couple who had, you know, made their mark in their home country. And then they moved to America because I think um, living in South Africa started to get a little complicated, let's say, um, or, you know, just producing art there. And they were like, we love American musicals. Like we love sort of Oklahoma. We love all the classics and we want to do it. We want to do it. And um, there's... You know, Frank Rich was kind of like there's really the sort of uncanny valley uh, sheen to it where it's sort of like imitating something very familiar, but like doesn't really understand sort of the heart of what makes it good. (laughs) I mean, it's good because of Judy Garland and because of the beautiful Technicolor and neither of those things um, can translate. I I thought it was funny that so, you know, poor Donna Kane, who plays the Judy character, it's like, you know, why would you do that to someone to make them like, (laughs) you know, live up to that kind of legacy. But the review of the cast album was like, you know, there's not enough pain in her voice. (laughs) It's like, sorry that, you know, Donna Kane hasn't like suffered this trauma that's going to send her to an early grave. (laughs) Like Judy, (laughs) you know, we can't we can't have that. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. But I think she does kind of sound like Judy, like especially in like the sort of big, uh, like belty notes that she kind of has a similar quality, but without, you know, the all consuming sadness from having a tough life. Um, And on that note, I was reading the YouTube comments of some footage from the show and um, someone had commented that they went to see the original production and they came back and their like piano teacher asked them how it was. And uh, the little kid was like, it was fabulous, but no one can sing like Judy Garland. And he said (laughs) that his piano teacher rolled her eyes at him. Wow. That's That's rude. Yeah. Side note, there was also a Vincent Minnelli retrospective at MoMA that same year, which I think was sort of, um, you know, tied into that whole maybe like a reconsideration of his, um, you know, body of work. Yeah. And then about 10 years later, we have Minnelli on Minnelli, where um, Liza does kind of like a one woman show about his films. So I would have liked to see that. Um, the other thing, so I watched the movie for the first time to prepare for this. This was not like a movie that we watched growing up. And I had like a Don't Cry For Me Argentina moment about the trolley song, which again, I had sort of assumed um, would be different in context. It's weird because it like takes, the lyrics are in past tense and she's sort of describing something that happened, but it's like not something that actually happened she's like telling a story she's like describing what she's wearing while she's wearing something totally different and like you know I think the sort of the heart of it was that you know Ralph Blaine was having trouble writing the lyrics and they were like write a song about a trolley and he like found a picture where the the caption was clang 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 want the jolly little trolley and he's like I got it so 
I mean, I think it's a great song. It's a delight, but it's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> like she, you know, she sees her, her crush, like miss the trolley. And then she just like describes a completely different situation. I don't get it, but that's okay, I guess. With my high starched collar and my high top shoes and my hair, but high upon my head, I went to lose a jolly hour on the trolley and lost my heart instead. In his light brown derby and his bright green tie, he was quite the handsomest of men. I started to yell, so I counted to ten, then I counted to ten yeah, and I think that, like, you know, obviously the trolley song is, like, a really good place that we can, like, really compare and contrast the two, the film and the stage show. And it's, like, I just feel like the trolley song in the film is, like, just, you know, mostly close-ups of Judy Garland singing. And here it becomes, like, a very, like, dream sequence. You know, there's just, like, a large ensemble dancing, like, next to this, like, huge trolley that's moving around the stage. <laughs> and it's all very strange. But with on your point that you did just make, I will say that the trolley song fits into a very certain camp canon of song for me that um there are like little bits and pieces of it littered throughout popular culture and Mm -hmm. um until and like i'm like oh my god i love that song like you know i'm always like hearing bits and pieces of the trolley song and then i mean it's a banger it just doesn't make any sense it's a banger it doesn't make any sense but i do think it is very similar to my experience with um sweet (laughs) dreams are made of of this by Arrhythmics where I like once I actually hear the whole song I realize it doesn't make any sense and I don't know if I can enjoy it as much as I thought I could I don't know if it's changed my you know it has changed my relationship to it you know I see it in a different light now (laughs) now that I you know you just it's just one of those uh songs where you can't really pay attention to the lyrics you just have to coast on the vibes well, and I think that what I my favorite thing about it is the vibe of I love a song that's like someone talking to someone else, like kind of <laughs> gossipy, where she's just like <laughs> sitting on the trolley, like telling. Yeah, and a story. you know you got the fun like onomatopoeia where she's making all they're making all the different trolley sounds. It also is very reminiscent of my favorite Wizard of Oz moment where she, uh, it's like. Ooh, but what happened then was this. It really was no miracle. What happened was just this. The wind began to switch, the house to pitch, and suddenly the hinges started to unhitch. Just then, the witch, to satisfy an itch, went flying on her broomstick, thumbing for a hitch. Oh, totally. It is is fun when she gets to gossip. Yeah. (laughs) Going back to what you said about it being this huge production number, that was sort of the one compliment that frank rich has was that he was like it looks really expensive (laughs) (laughs) you know it's not like a little cheap ass kind of throwing it all upstage like i think they had like a real ice skating rink they had you know like a full real trolley they had a huge cast so at least it was um you could see your money on the stage for the performance i felt like the performance was a lot it was a lot it was a very chaotic medley that's it's funny before I even did any of the research my notes for Donna Kane was like she can sing but she she has a Judy-esque quality without the devastating sadness (laughs) which is is, uh, you know that's why there's only one Judy we can't do this to anyone else one other thing that we had spoken about was that every single like 
piece like news item about this season like has to make mention of Les Mis and Phantom (laughs) and my favorite from this one is a George Hearn quote where he says I suppose you could call this a fantasy says Mr. Hearn in his dressing room but as dreams go it's not a bad one and one we could use a lot more of these days given the drug problem and the disintegration (laughs) of the family I absolutely think that there is a place on Broadway for this type of show along with Les Mis and Phantom (laughs) Mm -hmm. sure yeah I don't know if this should be a real segment, but it's a segment in our hearts, which is, is Sondheim having a good year? And for the answer for this one is, he's having a very good year. We yeah, had... 100%. <laughs> there was a little article checking in on him because there were um, very well-received revivals of Gypsy and Sweeney Todd at the same time. Um, and everyone was kind of checking back in on him and being like, how do you feel about that? Um, and he was like, great. <laughs> yeah. And, and he also had Dick Tracy. And Assassins was waiting in the wings. Yes. To bring and... things down again. <laughs> so we had these two. I think Gypsy got a little more heat than Sweeney Todd because we have, um, you know, Tyne barreling in and winning the Tony. I got 30 seconds for a 36-year-old fantasy. Uh, but it was nice because I want to thank Joe Cates because he sent us this great letter that was of instructions about what to do. Don't be boring and don't say thank you because it's gone out of style and and uh, <clears throat> but and don't bring your laundry list, which confused me because why would a person bring a laundry list to when everybody's all? I'm sorry, I'm t- wasting time. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And so what we have here is sort of the continuation of what started with the Angela Lansbury revival, which is Arthur Lawrence just trying to sort of wrestle you know, authorial control of Gypsy and being like, this is my show now. Like, I'm going to direct every... Or I guess he didn't direct it in 2003, which is why he was so mean about it. But Mm -hmm. he was like, I'm going to direct it a 100 times. I'm going to fight with all of the roses. Unfortunately, we don't get a... We don't get any revival performances this Mm -hmm. season, which is very sad. But yeah, Tyne wins. What is she, she looks very hot here. There was a couple there were a couple of kind of backhanded things where they were like she's so thin and pretty in real life like in uh, art, the articles about her and she was like leave me alone the cop costume adds 10 pounds. <laughs> well that she, is actually very true. Like I really was surprised at not to be a bitch but like I was surprised <laughs> at how glamorous she was and like sexy. She looks so hot. But yeah, so she's one who people have said that like her performance was really about you know, seeing it in the theater, like she's not really a singer. Uh, you know, the cast album doesn't do her justice. Um, and also, this was a show that they toured with it throughout the country and before it came to Broadway. And they had her do like a little diary kind of talking about it. And she was, and there was a lot of complaining about how big all of the touring theaters were, which I think is, um, which is fair. <laughs> touring seems really hard. Yeah, 100%. Someone tell me, when is it my turn? Don't I get a dream for myself? Starting now, it's gonna be my turn. Gangway world, get off of my runway. Starting now, I'm better fouls 
So then they had um, a very, very cool sounding revival of Sweeney Todd in Circle in the Square, where it was kind of almost kind of like an environmental uh, staging where like the audience was sort of surrounded with scenery and kind of like giving you the impression that you're in this like 19th century London neighborhood, um, which seems really cool. You know, this is a very small sort of intimate personal version, unlike, you know, the original Hal Prince production, which was big it was very like political this really focused on sort of really um also focused on mrs lovett played by beth fowler and uh yeah seems cool it's i really wish i had seen that i love an environmental sweeney todd yeah and i think i like the press about it i was like you know i guess i'd never really thought it like contextualize the original production this way but they're like yes while the original production is like over dramatic and like you there's like grease paint like dripping off of everyone's faces and um these things about it that i was like oh wow like that is very true and i didn't really realize it and i think that you know 10 years after people were really here to embrace this it's also kind of like a bold move especially in like an era where like joel gray is you know still playing the mc and like cabaret revivals to you know try something so drastically new with something that was such a big hit um yeah it transferred from off broadway and i think that it kind of there were a lot of previews and i think it took a while for it to kind of find its footing and you know i think it was kind of like heralded but like would never really be like a huge huge hit yeah i think it was just a limited an intentionally limited run but you know a funny little trivia piece is that it you know it was that circle in the square which is in the same building as um, the Gershwin, formerly known as the Urus, which was where the original production was, just downstairs. Oh, wow. But something that is kind of interesting about Sweeney Todd is that it's either like a huge production, like with the Philharmonic or like at an opera company, or it's like a very, very scaled down, tiny cast, like very intimate. Like you don't really see, like I wonder if we'll ever see another production of it like the original, like on the scale of the original rather than scaled up or scaled down. I feel like that's like the next stop. I feel like now that there have been so many stripped down production of it, I feel like people are going to be like, when are we ever going to see Sweeney Todd the way that it was meant to be seen? I mean, my only complaint about those little productions is that the orchestra is so small and you don't get to hear all of the richness of the score played by a full (laughs) orchestra. But you don't get to see that much. um, You don't get to see that much these days anyway. Although actually there was a little um, footnote in the Grand Hotel story that they cut all of the string players and they were like striking outside the theater and replaced them with the synthesizer to save $10,000 a week. And I guess probably to save, you know, some weight on that, uh, like the second level. (laughs) And I do think that there was like a notable synthesizer in this production of Sweeney Todd too, which makes sense. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. So we didn't say the awards. So Gypsy and Gypsy also won Best Revival. So it was nominated for Best Revival, Best Performance by Leading Actress for Tyne Daly, Best Performance by a Featured Actor for Jonathan Hattery, and Best Performance by a Featured Actress for Krista Moore. And it won Best Revival. And as we mentioned, Tyne Daly won for Sweeney Todd. It was nominated for Best Revival, Best Leading Actor and Actress for Bob Gunton and Beth Fowler, and Best Direction, and it did not win any of those. So then we had a couple other musicals of note. There was a revival of Three Penny Opera that featured Sting. The one noteworthy thing is that Linda Weiner in New York Newsday said, The revival was respectful, uninspired, almost academic, and thus not terrible, but merely okay. As for Sting, every breath he takes, every move he makes, you'll be watching him. <laughs> but he was more David Nevin than Mac the Knife. By the Thames's turbid waters, when abruptly tumble down, is it plague or is it cholera or a sign that heats in town? I don't know. I think I've mentioned this, that I collect um, like vintage Broadway t-shirts and sweatshirts. And one of my, you know, most coveted items that I've seen on Etsy is a, is a sweatshirt from the Sting production of um, Three Penny Opera, but it is way more than I'm willing to pay for it. So if uh, anyone else feels like balling out and has $168 to spare, there's a very cool looking sweatshirt on there for you. Some people are like, this was like the closest Three Penny Opera has ever been to like where it should be. Um, and then a lot of people were like, this is the worst production of it ever. So it didn't, they never made a recording, which is actually kind of sad because I would love to uh, hear it. I wonder if it was like a, a conflict with Sting's record company. Oh, that's kind of interesting. I didn't think of that. Yeah. So then we have, um, it never made it to Broadway, but this was the year of Annie 2, Miss Hannigan's Revenge. Charles Strauss did not learn his lesson from the Bye Bye Birdie sequel. He was going to keep on trying. And Tommy Toon didn't learn his lesson seeing this happen. <laughs> um, yeah. And like in some places, they were like, this was the most anticipated show of the season, which I very much highly doubt. I mean, I think anticipation can also be a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like people were waiting to see it fail. Yeah. Um, and Dorothy Loudon was back. I think part of the problem was that like, Annie kind of like really ties itself up very nicely at the end. So like, why would there be a sequel? Yeah, you don't want to see Annie have any more problems. That girl has been through enough. Yeah, you know, this subtitle is like Miss Hannigan's Revenge, where they're like, well, like, what does Miss Hannigan really have to get revenge about? But like, it just is like the plot is insane of like her like posing as like a beauty queen pageant contestant. And like, I think the world's a better place that um, it did not. Also, it just kind of seemed like a paint by numbers. Like instead of having like an NYC number, they had like a Coney Island number. But they did try to fix it up and make it Annie Warbucks, right? Yeah, which I don't, there was an article that was kind of traced the genesis of everything. Yeah, so if you're interested in learning more about that, you can. We're not going to go into it anymore here, but it's like, do you guys, are you guys not making enough money off Annie? <laughs> like, just leave it. Okay, and now it's time for... 
Tim's Play Corner. I feel like the Tonys did a good job of representing the plays this year. We had performances from The Grapes of Wrath, from Lettuce and Lovage, The Piano Lesson, and Prelude to a Kiss. So the big winner of the year was The Grapes of Wrath. It was adapted from the John Steinbeck novel, and it was nominated for Best Play and Best Direction of a Play, and it won both. One thing in the total, all the coverage of it is that like New York Times theater critics just hate poor people because like (laughs) everyone like starts with them of a joke of being like if you didn't have to walk over enough bums in Times Square getting to the theater like you know go see uh, the Grapes of Wrath. Jesus. With that being said um, you know I think that much like sort of uh, Nicholas Nickleby uh, you know a few years earlier um, this was like a very holistic way of like adapting the novel where I think that um, Frank Galletti as like the director and adapter um, who was working kind of with the Chicago uh, with Steppenwolf's uh, theater ensemble um, you know did like a really good job of like not just like adapting it but like sort of like translating this book into like theater um, because the performance Frank- was really cool I was surprised yeah. it's, it made it seem really interesting and I was also shocked that it had never been adapted into a play before or had it been I think it, it was like very famously adapted into the movie with Henry Fonda right and it's kind of seen as like a spectacular adapt film adaptation but I thought that this was sort of like a nice sort of sum up of it on the surface The Grapes of Wrath is one of the worst great novels ever written. The characters are perishable WPA mural archetypes, incapable of introspection. The dialogue is at times cloying and folksy, and the drama is scant. In any ordinary sense, there's no play here. Um, and without Henry Fonda's presence, a sweetened screenplay, and Greg Tolan's spectacular on-screen cinematography, there wouldn't have been much of a movie either. But Steinbeck wasn't trying to be Dickens or Hugo or Dreiser. Without embracing either a jingoist's flag or a Marxist's ideology, he was simply trying to unearth and replenish the soul holding a country together. That's the simple, important drama that Steppenwolf, with incredible, sophisticated theatrical technique, brings to the stage. You know, as I said, one best play and one best director, which I think it deserved. But um, there were a lot of pieces about how it just wasn't selling. And But I think they were smart to sort of lead with the music because there was like a heavy um, musical bluegrass sort of uh you know interpolated into it and i thought that was smart to sort of let you know it's not all going to be a drag (laughs) they're going to have some fun 66 is the path of people in flight refugees from dust and sinking land from the thunder of tracks from the twisting I think actually my superficial read of it is like, I'm mean, gonna read this book in when I was in 11th grade. Like, I don't need to go see a play of it, but right. I think that adapting kind of these like very English class novels into plays, um, and you see this with like elevator repair service, you know, adapting something like Gats or, you know, I think that there's like a very important sort of place for these sort of like literary adaptations and they're cool. Yeah. So that was kind of the big winner. And I guess 
The other big show of the big play of the year was August Wilson's The Piano Lesson, um, which was like the fifth play in his Pittsburgh cycle. And it was kind of an upset that it lost. Like it had won all of the pre-Tony Awards, right? Yeah. And he, I think, had won his second Pulitzer Prize in like a two-year period. But... The Tonys have really done August Wilson dirty. Like, it's crazy how he's like really the only black playwright who's regularly represented and you know, is pretty much constantly a bridesmaid. This is like kind of a nice little sum up of him and his work. Though Mr. Wilson won a Pulitzer Prize last week for this work, no one need worry that he is marching to an establishment beat. The Piano Lesson is a joyously is joyously an African-American play. It has its own spacious poetry, its own sharp angle on a nation's history, its own metaphorical idea of drama and its own palatable ghosts that roar right through the upstairs windows of the household where the action unfolds. Like other Wilson plays, the piano lesson seems to sing even when it's talking, but it isn't all of America that is singing. The central fact of black American life, the long shadow of slavery, transposes the voices of Mr. Wilson's characters and of the indelible actors who inhabit them to a key that rattles history and shakes the audience on both sides of the racial divide. That kind of sense, uh, you know, chills down your spine. But, totally. But with that being said, um, I think Denzel Washington is working on adapting um, this. I did. Netflix. Yeah, I saw, I saw that. It's He did... Uh, I guess that's part of his deal with Netflix is he's doing like all these Pittsburgh plays, you know, the ones that haven't already been done. Yeah, which is amazing. And just kind of going through the rest of everything else, there was Lettuce in Lovage, which was a Peter Schaefer play um, that was like about like two warring uh, tour guides played by Maggie Smith and Margaret (laughs) Tyzak. Um, and it sounds really fun. And like in the reviews, people are like, this is like all of Peter Schaefer's plays are basically the same. And like, this is basically Equus, except like two like funny British ladies are like (laughs) playing the lead parts. That is a big except. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And there are no horses, but but nobody's, nobody's naked. Yeah, but Maggie Smith and Margaret Tyzak both won Best Actress. Ma- Maggie Smith won Best Actress, and Margaret Tyzak won Best Featured Actress. And um, they got to do a fun little scene. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of hard to like watch on the record the Tonys telecast, but after I kind of read about it, I like rewatched it, and I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, just kind of finishing up Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. The guy who played Big Daddy won and snuck a kiss from Tyne Daly while she was presenting <laughs> the award. Wow. Um, our good old friend Robert Morris won Best Performance by a Leading Actor for playing Truman Capote in like a one-man show called True. And you know what was fun about that is that he um, came up, he walked up to Brotherhood of Man, of course, and then he shouted out the conductor who was uh, a man named Elliot Lawrence, who was also the conductor for how to succeed and he conducted the tony awards he conducted and musical directed the tony awards from the very first televised show from 1967 all the way up through 2013 Hello, Elliot. (laughs) I believe in you. (laughs) Elliot was my conductor in How to Succeed, and here he is tonight. 
Oh my God. <laughs> so, you know, they had their sweet little moment. I kind of had this theory. I'm like, I bet he just won because he's Robert Morris. And I think that. I think he probably did. He, like, apparently he was wearing like a fat suit um Ugh. and was like you know frank rich in his review is just like talking about like waiting to those like robert morris eyes to like sparkle at the audience and he's like i finally saw him but <laughs> another play that performed that didn't win anything was prelude to a kiss which was by craig lucas um and it seemed it kind of seemed like cute and fun and it did you got a very young mary louise parker who was also singled out there was like i actually this was amazing that there was an article sort of about like the future breakout stars of this season and almost everybody they named did end up being a breakout star it was like mary louise parker jane krakowski rachel york the only person who didn't really end up breaking out was krista moore who played Louise in the Gypsy Revival. But yeah, so I think, um, you know, Prelude to a Kiss seems to be about a, a man who falls in love with a young woman and she comes back in a body of an old man, um, which was sort of seen as kind of like a metaphor for AIDS and young people sort of dealing with the person you love being trapped in this kind of like, you know, decaying and dying body like sort of before their time which is very uh, a very poignant idea yeah and it's just like so funny because i feel like you know there are a lot there's a lot of like why is like the american theater like not clicking like why are like the straight plays like not really clicking and i feel like this is like kind of right before or like right at the moment of like kind of the big aids explosion of or the theater explosion of like a few years later where like there are so many yeah we're a couple of years away from angels in america angels in america is right on the horizon millennium approaches baby yeah i feel like we're kind of in like a funny era where it's like right before angels in america and right before this sort of like era where like disney and also like hollywood stars are like kind of keeping plays alive well we do have kathleen turner and uh, cat on a hot tin roof this year that's true and also alec baldwin was in uh prelude to a kiss downtown so mm. maybe what i'm saying is that everything's kind of starting to be in motion and that we'll like see the height of it in a few years yeah yeah do we have bits and pieces do we uh do you have a dream threesome there weren't too many my two dream threesomes would be dixie carter and christopher reeve <laughs> Um, or Bernie and Michael Crawford. Oh, I was going to say, I have those two, and I also have a nightmare threesome. I don't know if you have... Do you have that? Mine is Matthew Broderick and Jessica Tandy. (laughs) (laughs) I also liked that this rip of the Tonys had, like, a news break in it, where you got a little taste of the the news stories of this time. From Channel 2 News, this is Newsbreak. Good evening, I'm Elizabeth Vargas. Killer tornadoes have killed eight people and injured 150 in southern Indiana. Witnesses say it's like a war zone. Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev is in Minneapolis tonight after four days of summit talks with President Bush. And the Bulls came so close but couldn't beat the Pistons in Game 7. We'll have all the analysis and comments tonight. The one like thing is like Ron. Sil- I feel like we might have touched on this, but Ron Silver goes on like a kind of crazy rant. Oh, about- right. Yes, go. I don't really understand what he's criticizing, but he does. He's cr- is criticizing the Chinese government, and I think this is like right. Ar- well, this is obviously right around like Tiananmen Square times. Um, but he kind of goes on like a rant. You know, he's praising the NEA, but this is like right at the time of the NA NEA four, where like they're basically not giving money to like gay performance artists because. Mm 
an artist in general because they're um you know there's like culture wars um so i think it's like a kind of kind of funny thing to be like oh the like repressive chinese government but yet like you know lots of people are sick and dying of aids and there's a lot of like maybe not as extreme but culture wars going on um i think that's it right i think we i think we did it so next time i just went and looked it up because i forgot um next time we're doing another nice round number we're jumping back 20 years to the 1970 tony awards which actually now that i'm looking at it this might be one that we can do in one episode because there were only three best musical nominees and they were applause coco and pearly none of which i think are real heavy hitters but this is one where there's like this is a little bit um you know there are only three nominees in many categories so yeah, I mean, I think and I think the most notable thing about this is that we have both Lauren Bacall and Katherine Hepburn appearing in musicals um, when neither of them are really known for their singing or <laughs> their stage acting. So or is Kath- maybe Katherine Hepburn. Did she get her start on the stage um, or was she always a? Um, I think, no, she actually okay. got her start on Broadway and then she did. OK, but she hadn't been on Broadway since like 1932, basically. So <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, this is kind of a new thing for her. So you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram for more information on the season's shows. You can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. You can also DM us on any of those platforms and uh, we'll see you next time. Oh, wait, you know what I realized? We haven't been doing any what's. Do you have any what's? Not to put you on the spot. Mm, I definitely probably do. I mean, I do feel like the Ron Silver thing was very what. Okay, yeah, I think you're right. Also, I have a mean what. Can okay. I say it? Yeah, I mean, we, we can, can always take cut it, it out. out. Where are Linda Lavin's eyebrows? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I've, you said we weren't going to be mean to Linda Lavin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we. Lo- I love Linda Lavin. Me Sorry. too. You know, she. Not everyone can do everything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. A little bitchiness to send us off. All right. Bye. The nominees have been selected by the experts of the Tony Nominating Committee from 31 eligible productions which have opened this year. The secret ballots were then voted on by 661 qualified industry voters, and the results have been tabulated by the accounting firm of Lutz & Carr. Portions of this program have been pre-recorded. 